Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. Thrilled to have Dr. Nicole Neal in the uh, podcast with us today. Uh, she's my first interview as we move into the province of Ontario for some discussions as we get out of BC for what has been the context for uh, quite a few of uh, the first uh, interviews we've done on the podcast. So it's nice to move across the country and nice to have Nicole as our first uh, Ontario guest. So welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thank you. One of the probably the main reasons that I kind of tracked down Nicole was uh, because of some of the work she's doing in particular with the population of uh, folks with Down syndrome. And there's not a lot of folks doing research on kind of ABA and interventions for Down syndrome in that level, at least that, that I'm familiar with. And it was pretty exciting to know that uh, someone uh, in our own country is is pioneering a lot of this research. Uh, before we got to get to that, Nicole, I was, I was hoping maybe you could just, uh, like many of the podcast interviewers do, um, Give me a little bit of kind of your origin story, kind of how you got into the field, um, and then what led you to kind of start focusing more on working with folks with uh, Down syndrome. Yeah, sure. So I uh, I started at McMaster in my undergrad was my first like behavioral uh, position, and I took a, a like a summer job doing in home private, uh, like instructor therapist work. And I started that job and it was, uh, one that was like the, the program was run by the family. So they had, they had privately hired a BCBA. Mm. I don't even know if they were a BCBA at the time, but Mm. the equivalent position. (laughs) And, uh, I was trained and I worked a few weeks and, uh, and then the family fired me. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) But I got really positive feedback from the behavior analyst working that. So then I, I pursued practicum uh, with, uh, at the time it was called Behavior Institute. So uh, I worked with Cole Walton Allen as, as one of my first jobs and doing in-home kinds of things. And those positions really sort of led me into the field. I, I took them because I was doing an undergrad in, in psychology and thought, oh, I should get some psychological experience if I want to do something in this field. And both of those just happened to be behavior analytic. And so then uh, then I went for my master's at, at Brock and worked with uh, Dr. Trisha Vaz doing, doing my master's there in the um, Center for Applied Disability Studies. And uh, after that, there's limited options for PhDs in uh, behavior analysis across Canada, mm-hmm. and I had specific interests. So, so then I I went to the states and I looked in the states for PhDs, and uh, I I got into Down syndrome because my supervisor at uh, the uh, Queens College, the City University of, of New York, Emily Jones. I had quite a bit of experience in in autism, and uh, I've been doing some mental health stuff with. Uh, with Trisha, and uh, we wanted she had some expertise in Down syndrome, so we tried to to modify some of the things that I've been doing um, in my master's and apply it to populations with Down syndrome. And that's sort of where the the Down syndrome piece came from. And and our first set that sort of uh, inspired a lot of the research that she was doing and that I ended up doing for Down syndrome was there was a a set of twins. Hmm. 
that uh, one had autism and one had Down syndrome. Wow. And there was uh, a real disparity in the services that uh, the twins accessed uh, with, with the child with autism, getting a lot more funded programming and mm-hmm. behavioral access and a totally different set of funding structures and access in place for the child with Down syndrome. So that that was always touted as like the the case that really really showed the need to continue to disseminate uh, in absolutely the field. yeah wow that's amazing so it sounds like uh, kind of just going go back to your 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 beginning story there if it weren't for this uh, supervisor giving you some good positive feedback you might have gone a completely different direction. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it because it was a private family, mm-hmm. it was really, I think, the mom trying to find a therapist that she felt comfortable with. And, you know, it totally makes sense. And I just wasn't that person. But the supervisor said, you know, you, you have skills just because this family isn't isn't the family for you doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't another family out there that you would work well with. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's really good. I think that that's sort of I know that's not really a topic today, but that speaks to kind of really good supervision uh, because I think there there is a piece kind of around contextual fit and, uh, you know, families and, and interventionists meshing well and, and, and you know, just trying to find a, a good match there and kind of being able to understand sort of early on in the career that uh, sk- having the skills and, and maybe not matching with the family is fine and normal and lots of other opportunities. So that's really cool. Um, Absolutely. And, and, you know, you're in someone's home, right? Like you're there in their most private personal kinds of life. So I totally understand if you're like, even if it's just a vibe, right? Like I get it. I I don't really like this person here. Totally. I I understand. Yeah. They may have been just looking for a particular person. I know, I know I've been talking to uh, as, as, as I've been kind of doing my supervision, I've been uh, talking to a lot of um, folks that that are they're working kind of with families, and uh, these supervisees of mine are young; they're in their like early twenties, and um, these families really want people that are older because they think you know age is sort of equivalent to, to wisdom and, and skills and training, and and so they're often asking for the the older consultant. Can you bring the older consultant in when <laughs> they when in fact it's it's probably more likely that the younger one actually has more training because the, the programs weren't available for the for for some of the older folks. But yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, I really like the I really like the 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 piece about the the twins. That's that's an amazing sort of um, I don't know uh, act. Of, you know, sort of twist of fate to sort of be presented with a set of twins and, and, and have that experience. Yeah. They had, um, that family had been working with, with that, that lab group for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And they started because of the, the child with ASD participating in, in some interventions and that, that prompted them to say, Hey, maybe we can do stuff for these, this other, other sibling. Totally. So maybe kind of we can kind of start with um, just some more understanding of, of of Down syndrome. I mean, I, we know it's a it's a genetic syndrome, um, and you know, and and uh, you know the, the 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 cause is identifiable, unlike autism, uh, where they're still sort of looking at all all the different possible causes. It's pretty straightforward. You you know it's Down syndrome right from the beginning. 
and so and so there's certainly some potential there for even earlier intervention because you know right from birth and we can kind of touch on that maybe a bit later but what is it we we know a lot about autism in this field we know about sort of those three sort of core areas of you know social skills and 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 language and repetitive behavior what is it about down syndrome that makes aba kind of you know a, a good treatment yeah uh so typically when i uh talk about like the expression of down syndrome we talk about uh about the behavioral phenotype so you've got your genotype right your your genetic makeup and how that gets expressed as your phenotype and um in a lot of the sort of developmental literature they talk about a behavioral phenotype which is less you know maybe a little bit less direct when we're when we're thinking about physical things right you have the gene for blue eyes you get you get blue eyes but uh with the behavioral phenotype we're talking about a, a probabilistic kind of outcome so mm. they may be more more likely than people with other genotypes to display these characteristics but it's not it's not down syndrome gives you these behavioral right. ones right. so so it's 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 a little sort of softer in terms of directly related but you know we're kind of familiar with that with autism because there's a blend of of expression right and we get mm -hmm. the same thing so i think that's really important to keep in mind that you know maybe because of the the genetic makeup we think of down syndrome as a little more homogenous but mm. um there's there's quite a bunch of variability uh, mm. within that expression in itself so that's that's the first thing i'd say is that there's a lot of differences and then you can even get into things like mosaic uh down syndrome where you have parts of your cells have trisomy uh, 21 but other parts like other cells do not so oh, um, wow. that that will also affect uh expression but things that, that we see in Down syndrome, one of the biggest areas that I think behavior interventionists would be um, focusing on would be the, the language. So mm. we see pretty early on um, some difficulty with expressive language, a lot of uh, language delays in articulation, in things like tacting and manding and just expression in itself, mm. uh, relative to their expressive um, or their spoken language, they're stronger in receptive language, which I, which I think is true for a lot of um, intellectual disabilities mm -hmm. uh, as well, or not all, there's a couple, but mm. for most of them. Mm -hmm. um, so relative strengths in receptive compared to expressive. And a relative strengths in like pragmatic, so social use of language. So the nonverbal kinds of things. Um, and that's where you get those sort of stereotypes of being charming or sociable mm. or outgoing, right? So um, a lot of those, those social pieces tend to be strengths compared to the, the, the language pieces. Uh, we see quite a bit of uh, difficulty in uh, cognitive functioning. So verbal short-term memory, doing really long extended task analyses can be difficult holding information in short-term memory and working memory. Mm. So if you're giving, you know, multi-step instructions, uh, we see a lot of breakdown when we get to longer uh, steps. I haven't had a lot of success teaching really long steps without some kind of support to mm. individuals with Down syndrome. 
The other area that I've done a, a bit of work in is uh, what they call task persistence. So uh, we see a lot of variability in how they respond on sort of, you know, standardized tests. And then when we think about what we're doing in behavioral kinds of uh, settings, right, when we're giving repeated tasks, we see a lot mm. of variability. So, you know, they'll, they'll do an IQ test or something like that, or they'll present a task. And on the first one, they'll perform, you know, with relative strengths in certain areas and relative mm. weaknesses in other areas. And then on the next one, we get a totally different pattern of responding, what they call it. I don't know if I necessarily like the term that I've seen in the, in the literature, but they call it like opting out of learning opportunities, um, mm. which I, I, I don't necessarily think that they're choosing not to do that. But, right. um, but when things are really difficult, we see this real variability in responding and so they call that poor task persistence, that mm. um, they don't push past difficult things or that that they're presenting a lot of challenging behavior for task-related demands. Does that mean that maybe, that's interesting, so does that mean that, that some of the, these kind of standardized testing tools that, that you're using to, to, to measure these things may not be sort of working properly because... You, you get to sort of task two to measure some something else and they're and for whatever reason they're less interested and less motivated in kind of doing the task is is that just sort of speaking to the task persistence or is that speaking to their ability to do the task yeah uh I don't know <laughs> I think that's a good question right <laughs> yeah I think that's not unique to Down syndrome either but mm -hmm. it is something that is particularly noted in the the literature mm -hmm. is that you know, the context of these of these standardized tests and their applicability to people with really significant intellectual disability, mm -hmm. um, it, it's challenging to get a good picture of performance, especially, mm -hmm. you know, there's ones that you can choose that are better, that are easier for people without a lot of language. But, you know, the standard WISC relies a lot on expressive language and verbal yeah. short-term memory. So <laughs> I, I don't know what you're getting except, you know, that they do have an, an inability to do these particular tasks. So, yeah, yeah. The, and, and there's better ones to pick that, that modify that a bit, but it's still really challenging to do these, these IQ tests with people with significant intellectual disability. Yeah, for sure. And so with, with all of this, uh, behavioral variability, you know, un, unlike autism, I think on some level, I mean, certainly, you know, we know autism is a spectrum and there's, you know, lots of different presentations there, but there does seem to be, you know, well, you don't get the diagnosis without sort of those, those core, you know, uh, uh, characteristics, whereas, yeah. whereas Down syndrome, you, you get the diagnosis from the genes and the cells, you don't get it from the behavior, right? Is that yeah. kind of how it works? Yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. It, is, it, is it essentially a blood test or? Yeah. So it, it could be like if, if a mother... Um, does prenatal testing, mm. right? They might they might get it at that point, right? Um, and then oftentimes they'll uh, notice at birth because there are physical features that are obvious, yeah. right? And then they'll do testing afterwards to confirm that, right. um, and that would also confirm, right? If they had a, a mosaic or the trisomy of all their cells, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the stuff, like there, there's, there's also some, like interesting kind of 
I've, I've only had one uh, ever had really one client, I think that I worked with that had down syndrome and he had, which I don't know if this was sort of, you know, a generalized characteristic, but he had, there, there were sort of things physiological, like around like swallowing and, and the tongue and, 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 and kind of those sorts of things. Lots of folks with the tongue kind of, kind of sticks out a lot. And so, and, and of course, all of that, you know, obviously affecting swallowing and, and eating and, and whatnot, but also affecting speech um, in a lot of ways. And so we have a lot of folks that can speak, but, you know, it, it, they're hard to understand. But there's, a, but you're saying it, it's not just sort of a an inability to understand them, but there's also actual, you know, language deficits. Yeah. Yeah. So there, I mean, there's definite medical and physical associated characteristics, right? Mm. So enlarged tongue, that's where you get some of that tongue protrusion pieces Mm -hmm. and the muscle tone issues. So there's low muscle tone, which results like in what looks like relaxed or lack of strength, Mm -hmm. um, which probably plays a role in in things like tongue protrusion. Mm -hmm. But then things like the flattened facial profile, right? If you're thinking about the airway passage, there's Mm -hmm. differences there. And so all of that is going to contribute to the expressive language challenges, right? So you see a lot of work done on articulation for Mm -hmm. kids with Down syndrome. And then in addition to that, there's these expressive pieces that go along with it. And they are going to feed into one another, right? Like, what's the point in talking if nobody understands me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. So mm-hmm. if I'm having difficulty with articulation and every time I say something, I have to repeat myself four times. Well, n- now I've got a much more challenging situation. And so I might not engage in that behavior because it's not going to be very rewarding to repeat mm-hmm, myself mm-hmm. a bunch of times. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know. I, again, it just reminded me actually of a, there's a second young lad that I kind of supported recently, um, uh, not directly, but kind of was, took a side job of just kind of now that living on the, living on the West coast, uh, in, in, uh, in, in the land of great hiking, I took a side job, just taking kids with disabilities out for hikes so I could get paid to go to the forest and enjoy the air. Um, and, uh, one kid in particular, I used to take out quite a bit and he had such amazing patience, like no one, no one could understand what he was saying, and he had to repeat himself, like you said, four times, five times, eight times. But he would happily do it over and over and over and over and over again until you figured out what he was saying, and it just blew my mind. Sort of the, the, the lack of frustration and the, uh, the acceptance that you know people don't understand what he's saying. Yeah, yeah, and I would say that's probably not necessarily characteristic of, yeah. of my experience, but of course those people probably wouldn't be coming for right. intervention as frequently right. either. But, but you do see like the, there's that, that social stereotype and, and there's a lot of socially motivated, socially directed behavior that mm-hmm. um, is present and does is intact unlike autism. And so, you know, if you're really motivated by people, then then maybe you'll keep going because it's worth yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is why, you know, we probably see, at least I've seen from my experience, a lot more folks with Down syndrome uh, having success getting jobs sort of later on uh, because, uh, you know, they just, they're, they're such, you know, uh, such social creatures that um, uh, that they they really just sort of change the, 
the vibe of the workplace. Um, and, 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 and you see, I mean, we've seen, uh, there was, there was, I think there was a great uh, documentary on TSN uh, about, a, a, you know, a, a fellow with Down syndrome who works as the kind of equipment, equipment manager for one of the major NHL teams. And, uh, and, and they just love him. Like he's like, just like the most, uh, the greatest thing that ever happened to that, that sort of sports club. Whereas, you know, we, we don't always see that with, um, with our autistic folk. Another th- sort of piece here around kind of the, the variability is I imagine, you know, again, kind of lots of autism comparisons here, but generally you get an autism diagnosis and sort of the, the messages get them into therapy as quick as possible, you know, whether it's ABA or not, um, it's get them into some kind of intervention as quickly as possible because early intervention is so important. But where with Down syndrome, if there's this variability, is it still the thought that they should all go into some kind of early intervention? Yeah. So like there's, I'm going to pull from a, the New York state education guidelines. Cause that's the one I know from, sure. from my PhD, but I know the recommended guidelines that were published years ago by the New York state department of health for zero to three, they were recommending things that, our early behavioral intervention, as well as early like speech and language mm-hmm. uh, therapy. I think it's really based on what what presents. We, I don't think we have the same recommendation in Ontario, but that's one of the only ones I know of where they, they specifically put that as a state guidance. But whether it actually happened mm-hmm. um, is, is different. So I definitely don't see like intensive early intervention being recommended. And I I honestly don't think I would necessarily recommend something similar to what we do with ASD for for kids with Down syndrome. Um, But targeted interventions based on specific presentations. So there's often a lot of early medical interventions that have to happen. You know, a lot of the kids I've worked with have Mm. had heart surgery uh, very right. young. So that's sort of number one is, is stabilizing medically. And then there's a lot of those motor things that come early on. So um, you're seeing a lot of OTPT work being done because of walking and using and motor planning and visual motor control, uh, all of those kinds of things early on, because that's going to be something you notice pretty quick, right? Is that they're not walking or they're mm. delayed crawling, those pieces. And then then we start to see the speech things come in. So mm-hmm. um, you'll see a lot of early speech language intervention uh, that will happen as well, because when you don't start talking right away, right, that's the first thing you think of. Mm-hmm. If you're collecting CEUs for this episode, you'll need to know the three secret words. The first secret word is down. And so uh, with, with, I mean, sticking maybe to New York as the example, and then we can move local. They have these recommendations. And so do they therefore have funding? Uh Kind of. Hmm. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> there is some funding through education. Like I know the family, I, and I, it might have changed. I, I mean, I've been out of New York for a few years now. Sure. But at least at the time, the people that we were working with actually took our research and got funding from the Department of Education for hours of therapy. Amazing. 
using using the data that we had. So sometimes I think, but you have to be pushy. Yeah. And in Ontario, the funding, I mean, most intervention funding, it's like any other diagnosis. So a lot mm. would come from like if it's a school, you can access some of it through school mm. and then insurance. And there are some, you know, small funding pieces, but it's, there's no Ontario Down syndrome program or Ontario intellectual disability program where you right. can access funding and get everything that you might get if you have the diagnosis of autism. Right. And for those listening that maybe don't know Ontario, you guys have the Ontario Autism Program, which is basically your funding model there. Right. Right, right, right. Why, why, like, why isn't there more research on Down syndrome? I mean, it's, it, it's awesome that you're pioneering this. Um, you, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're obviously, you know, young and, you know, you, you, you haven't been in the field that long, but you're doing this, this great, this great work. Like what, what, why, why isn't there more? There's, there's tons of research on autism and, and, and we know ABA is not, you know, you know, it wasn't even sort of created for autism initially, I don't think. And so, you know, what, what's going on? Uh, I'll do a lot of speculation, but I don't have yeah. any evidence for the things I'm saying. Sure. Of course. <laughs> uh, I'll put that out there first. <laughs> um, I think there's a, there's a, a lot of contributing factors. I think one, the presentation of Down syndrome is not as immediately urgent problem. Like the the problems that they're presenting are not as immediately urgent to families in Mm. the same way that severe challenging behavior that's present in other diagnoses is. Mm. So I think that's one contributing factor. You know, you you have a, a happy, smiley baby. There's lots of information about Down syndrome present, you mm-hmm. know, on the internet and in books. We've known about it for a long time. There, you're seeing things like, you know, the guy in the NHL with these positive stories. Yeah. Yep. And so I think there's generally a, a slightly more positive stereotype or halo. And when you mm. don't have those challenging behaviors, uh, it, you know, there's resources available that uh, mm. meet, meet their needs. So you know, we can improve in certain ways, but a lot of the things that they might be getting might be helping, right. Or are helping and, and that's working for them. Mm -hmm. And then I think in terms of thinking about the field of, of behavior analysis, there's a little bit behavior analysts. We think everything's similar (laughs) a lot Mm -hmm. of the time, Right. So, yes, the basic principles of behavior analysis are, are fairly universal. Right. We know that reinforcement works and does something, whether you're a rat or a, a <laughs> human or, you know, whether you have autism or you don't have autism. So some of the feedback I've received in the past, even when submitting uh, articles, is that, well, why would we care if you're doing the same thing that we've already established for another population. Mm. Uh, because of course it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that. And so I think that's that's a challenge. Mm. Um, and I've read and I've pulled quotes from other articles where they say, you know, EIBI is, is effective, early intensive behavioral interventions effective for kids with autism. And therefore, it should be effective for all kids with intellectual disability mm. and developmental disabilities without considering some of the nuance of one needing 
empirical evidence mm-hmm. to establish that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, you know, just because it's likely to work doesn't mean we know the best way to do it yet or mm-hmm. the best things to target within it. So I think there's some some challenges that come from our field that push down this literature a, a bit more because we, in my opinion, it's a, it's a little bit arrogant to think that, yes, it will work with everyone, everything, mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... With that, you're 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 doing some work. What, what what are some of the things you've been working on? Uh, yeah. So the things that we've been uh, doing in uh, Down syndrome, my specific area that uh, I've done a bit of work in is looking at intensity and how to consider intensity, and that sort of started with this idea of of do you know kids need this intense intervention, trying to establish that providing more intensive interventions for kids with Down syndrome would be beneficial. Mm. And I did this uh, more in the context of almost like a a basic type replication where we were looking at the pacing of instruction and seeing, you know, if we change the number of trials, if we change the pace of instruction, if we change the length of sessions, how does that affect learning? Mm. And we were doing it with verbal behavior. So some of it was uh, listener responding, some of it was um, tacting, some of it was interverbal kinds of things. Mm. But it was done in quite a traditional discrete trial approach. And that was because it was, you have to keep a lot of things similar if you're doing pacing work. Uh, Mm. So not necessarily the way I go about practice kinds of things, but it was necessary to answer the question. I see. So it's not that you, you think discrete trial training is the way to go for kids with Down syndrome. It's just a lot easier to kind of measure intensity and dosage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and honestly, you know, my, my work is the practice that I would recommend for kids with Down syndrome is, is inclusion full on, mm-hmm. right, which I recommend mm-hmm. for all kids. But <laughs> but yes, definitely inclusive things. And I think, you know, I think the low, the low intensity, but not too low intensity, uh, more naturalistic kinds of approaches would also mm. be beneficial as well, given, given my experience with the population. Mm. And that's mostly because of the, the, they have really strong social skills and right. modeling skills. And so just throwing them in a classroom with other kids, they're going to pick up a lot of behavior and mm. then you can focus in on those specific things that have that are giving them trouble right and and present those trials embedded in uh you know a classroom or a daycare or, or something right, like that right 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 so they probably they probably would do well with things like uh like like peer mediated learning and that kind of stuff absolutely yeah, yeah. so what did you what, what 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 did you find what 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 have you learned about dosage nothing no (laughs) Um, (laughs) what i learned is really hard to study dosage Mm. um so (laughs) the (laughs) the sort of the work that we did actually ended up being a lot more methodological kinds of questions and answers Mm. from that so when we think about dosage right like if i want to increase the pace of instruction so i got 10 trials yeah i want to do them you know uh, 30 seconds apart, or I want to do them one minute apart. Mm-hmm. So I want to compare those. So when I do that, unfortunately, another aspect of dosage is yoked to that, right? If I increase the pace, my session becomes short. 
Mm. Um, and if I decrease the pace, my session becomes long. And so I've got an uncontrolled variable there because right. it's it's intrinsically tied to that that pace piece. So, okay, now if I want to hold the duration the same, mm-hmm. well, I either have to do more trials, right, uh, to fill in that gap. So yeah. then I have a trial problem. What's what's right. more important? So our work was trying to figure out like, could I tease these apart if I came up with like a a matrix and said, you know, in this set of conditions, I'm going to hold the the time the same or the duration the same. If this set of conditions, I'm going to hold the uh, inner trial interval the same. And in this set of conditions, I'm going to hold the number of trials the same and mm. and do some some figuring out to make sure I have some overlap so that I can mm-hmm. figure that out. So that was that was our goal. And we tried to do it with like some single subject work. And it doesn't quite work out. And I think you need uh, like some randomized pieces. Mm. Um, And in the end, I just pointed out how we have to be really careful when we read some of these pacing studies, uh, you know, and thinking about that there's all these additional variables when you go in and you review intensity work. um, Oftentimes there's this confound of duration versus trials versus spacing between them. Um, So that be careful with that. And two, I don't think there's one pace that's the best. So mm. faster pace works for a lot of stuff. Um, and we see that, right? You know, you can look at precision teaching and fluency mm. work and that'll, that'll holds up basically. But I think it depends on the kid and my thoughts. We tried to do a little bit of it, but thinking about, can you do like some kind of brief assessment to decide what pace is going to be helpful for a particular response or teaching program because I think it's going to change too much depending on the program and the kid what you're trying to do and so you know could you do like a mini mini functional analysis and present two paces and see what results in better responding for that kid the same way you might do like a prompt assessment could you present three prompts and see which one works the best you could Mm. maybe do that with something like pace um, and session duration and, and those kinds of things so are you continuing to study dosage or was that sort of stuff you were doing and now you're doing some other things now? Uh, I have I have a little bit sort of on the back burner with mm-hmm. that. Once I can get in front of some, some kids again, right. I'd like to continue to do a little bit of teasing apart some of this stuff. But I would say it's more of a sort of a translational kinds of project, right? It's thinking about, you know, what's the what's the perfect pace. I don't think that exists. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's exploring how to actually study it well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you, you chose again, discrete trial for more again, for it's, it's, uh, uh the, the ease of, you know, measuring these, the, these DVs, but you maybe you wouldn't use that method to actually teach kids with down syndrome. Uh, and so wh- why not? Yeah. Um, I mean, in general, I'm not really a huge fan of, of control tabletop discrete trial stuff. Mm. And that's, that's mostly because I'm lazy at generalizing, (laughs) right? Like if I do it all at the table, then I got to work to put it somewhere else. Right. Um, So, so that, that's part of it is that, uh, you know, let's cut down on the context changes Mm -hmm. and let's do it uh, within context. I really think, you know, 
as much as kids can learn from other kids, let's take advantage of that. Mm, mm. And that's going to help with all the other things like stigma, like uh, understanding of their diagnosis, uh, ability to make friends and learn yeah. from friends and all of that stuff. So I very much think, you know, get them where they need to be. And then can we embed those opportunities in the places that that they need to be as kids? Mm-hmm. And, and I realize this is speculative and, and you know, you don't necessarily have the, the, the research to back it up. But do, do, do you think that that's sort of the case all around with discrete trial training? Because they're, they're, I mean, I think with kids with autism, they already struggle with generalization as sort of that's sort of like a key feature for them in, in you know, in a kind of a clinic setting or whatever. And then have to go and do it all again, you know, in at the home, at the school, at the park, at the pool, you know, um, and, and keep doing that. Um, like, I mean, this is more of a, you know, of a uh, maybe philosophical question. But what, why is discrete trial training still so popular? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I'm not like. I don't want to like trash on it totally. Uh, I think <laughs> there are maybe some some contexts where it might be important, right? Like when we're talking yeah. about fluency kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sometimes a little bit of drilling is going to be helpful, right? Sure. In the same way, there's um, with the talk, you know, like kids don't learn their times tables. Uh, mm-hmm. They learn about the why of doing multiplication. Mm-hmm. And I think you need both, right? You need mm-hmm. to be able to be fluent because if it's taking you 20 minutes to get to an answer, it's very hard to, to do the other stuff. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, especially when we're talking about these socially significant responses, mm-hmm. then I think teaching in context is is going to be the best bang for the buck. I just think mm-hmm. it's hard. It's really hard. Like mm-hmm. anyone who's run naturalistic play sessions and that, like you're, you you got to be on the ball all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to be really thinking and it's difficult. So th- th- that might be why. But yeah, mm. there's there's a time and a place for some discrete trial. But for the social stuff, let's let's do it with other kids. The second secret word is Western. Yeah, yeah. And so are you using, you know, because I know there are quite a few uh, of these sort of naturalistic developmental behavior interventions, they call them, uh, out there where they're, they're essentially all, you know, in, in, in the natural environment and they're often kind of, kind of child-led and, 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 you know, and learning opportunities are, are natural versus contrived. Um, uh, and so I think of things like, um, pivotal response training or the, you know, that, that the, uh, the early start Denver model, we just did a, just released a most recent episode, um, on, on that, um, with, uh, Maria sample kind of talking about, uh, ESDM. Are you using kind of any of those particular frameworks or are you just sort of just doing things in, in a context? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of it, so not right this moment because... Mm were socially distanced, but yeah, yeah. Um, b- before that, we were running sibling programs mm. uh, with kids with, with Down syndrome. And so we were working on play play between kids with Down syndrome and their siblings. And so we were targeting it in the context of like traditional gym class kinds of things. And so we were embedding those opportunities to practice their language and and 
requesting and, and things like that with, with their siblings. Hmm. And it was a group intervention. So it would be they could practice it with siblings of other individuals with Down syndrome as well. So that hmm. kind of mixed uh, peer group. So those kinds of things. But we don't use, you know, the principles are there, but I, I'm not you know, using a, a package um, that I would say, but it's the same, it's the same ideas, right? And uh, there's quite a bit of work from a group of people uh, in Down syndrome that use milieu communication training, which, you know, has behavioral roots um, mm. mixed with some developmental theory in there. Mm. So that, that kind of idea, right, of this similar to like the early start Denver ideas where they're mixing these sort of developmental approaches with, mm. with behavioral principles. So how did, how did that sibling program go? That sounds really neat. Like using, using the siblings. Yeah. So that one was a replication of something that was being done in, in New York mm. uh, with kids with ASD. And uh, we, uh, my first years at, at Western my first two students replicated uh, the program in a pilot project with mm. siblings, one who had Down syndrome and one who did not have a diagnosis of Down syndrome. Mm. And the program was the first hour we would do some work on, we would separate the, the sibling pairs. Mm -hmm. the, the kids with Down syndrome would do some work on things like requesting initiations with an interventionist like a pullout and then the siblings without down syndrome would go to a support group with um our, my students are in counseling psychology so just talking about what it's like to have a, a sibling with a disability and what that means for you and then we would bring them together for the second hour and and practice those same language targets and social targets with for the kids with Down syndrome with their siblings. Mm. Um, and the siblings would practice some of the things that they had worked on, which might be, you know, some things related to patients or even some of them doing some some prompting and, and things like that as well. Uh, how old were these kids? Uh, six to... I feel like our oldest was around 14. And, and the siblings, though, were they all? Yeah. Yeah. Them? So it was mixed. Um, I find it works best uh, if the siblings without Down syndrome are more similar in age because mm. it's hard to run a support group with a seven-year-old and a 14-year-old. Absolutely. So my experience is if you can match the, that group that does better. So you want, mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of teens or you want a bunch of school age kids because the dynamic doesn't quite work for support. It's hard to get support from a seven year old if, if you're a teen. <laughs> Absolutely. And I can already I can totally see the value of of this for the, the kids with Down syndrome. Um, you know, I mean, just to be able to have their own you know, family members kind of helping them learn and, and they often look up to their sibling, um, you know, and so, you know, they, they provide a, a you know, a, there, there's a lot of motivation to sort of model that person. I'm, I'm wondering what, what I, I imagine there were, there were, were some, like what, what were some of the benefits for the siblings kind of to have that ability to kind of get together and get that counseling and, 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 you know, just kind of connect with, you know, other siblings. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, sometimes just being acknowledged, I think, is a benefit <laughs> first mm -hmm. and foremost, just mm -hmm. saying someone else who can say, yeah, I get it. 
that that's a big piece. Uh, just mm-hmm. knowing that that you're not alone, that other people have the same experience. And we always had a guest speaker who was an adult um, who had a sibling with with Down syndrome come cool. in and talk to them, which I think was really great for uh, especially those in the teen transition years where, you know, they're thinking like, what's it going to be like when I go to university and I really want to leave home because I don't want to feel responsibility. And so talking to someone who had done that, that was always good to see, okay, my future looks or could look like this um, and, and it'll be all right. And then we also worked a little bit on coping strategies. Mm-hmm. So thinking about when you're frustrated, you, you know, what can you do or how, how do you ask for your own time because a lot of caregiving goes to siblings. And so you might not think of that as a parent because you need help. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you're asking your kid for help a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then being able to advocate for themselves and and Mm -hmm. that need for balance and and parents are aware, like they don't, they don't want it. (laughs) They don't want to put everything on their kid, but, but, having the ability to recognize and say, you know, it's too much for me, or I just want to be a kid today. And and can I have that mom or dad or whoever, right? So things like that, having coping skills, how to, how to deal with when people say things, how to deal with when your, your brother or sister does something that annoys you. And, and honestly, the skills are like, I don't know if you have siblings, but those are yeah. things that sometimes I, I needed help with too, right? It's Absolutely. like, how to, how to tell my brother to step yeah. off. <laughs> Using that language. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah, it really brings up a lot of really good points about sort of the effects of uh, on the family and, and on, on caregivers and, and that sort of thing. And I, I, I noticed in, in one of the links you sent me that you recently – published a study on kind of uh, some work around the support needs of caregivers. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what did that study look like and, and what did you find there? Yeah, that was a, a great study done by my, I have another one we're working on publishing. So I had two students working on these parallel theses. One did a qualitative work, one did quantitative work. Mm. And the one that's out is the, the qualitative one. Yeah. Uh, we were actually approached by the London Down Syndrome Association to help support them in putting together a parent support group. So awesome. that's how this project started. And uh, so my two students, both Masters of Counseling students, took this on. They put together a support group um, for the parents that they facilitated. So they would mm-hmm. get guest speakers and then they would also mediated time to, you know, just chat with mm-hmm. one another. Mm-hmm. So it was a blend of that. And um, then as part of their theses, they wanted to do like a need survey so that they could pass that on to Down syndrome advocacy agencies if they were designing their own support groups or they wanted to say, hey, let's lobby with this information mm-hmm. or let's let's ask at least we have some data to support it. And so the qualitative one, she she interviewed uh, a, a families of parents or caregivers who had a, a child with Down syndrome, any age could have been. And uh, then she did uh, a participatory approach. So she took all the interviews. She pulled out what, what we call unique statements. So they, they were different sort of in sentiment um, and content from all the other ones. 
And then she handed those unique statements back to the families and the families sorted them and created categories and also rated them on um, how important that they were. So whether they thought it was a need for families. Mm -hmm. So the the families did the data analysis kind of um, because they did all the the sorting of that to come up with the themes. And then we used a program that does it's called hierarchical cluster analysis, Good. where it basically calculates the distance uh, between all the ratings and sortings of the um, the what what the families gave us mm. to come up with a map. So hmm. we have like an average distance between all of those, and that's what that the map is in there. It's a really cool kind of uh, approach. And so all the themes that came out of that are actually right right from the family. They decided that that's what they were and that's that's what categories they should go into. And so we see to me it's not particularly surprising. Sure. What we see, right? We see it from a lot of caregivers for people with any disability. Mm. Big things being, you know, financial support, which even with funding you know, we still see that uh, among people with autism um, and their families. So uh, the inconsistency with having to rely on private insurance. So if you have private insurance, then you seem like you get a lot more, but, mm. you know, it's really hard to find them and it changes with age. And so there's a lot of a lot of difficulty with financial things and a lot of a lot of desire for some kind of streamlined a process, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, I, they want, they want speech, they want OT, they want PT, but they feel like they have to dig for everything. Mm. And th- that if you get a good sort of case manager type person or a good person at school, mm-hmm. then you get the things. But right. if you don't have that person to help you navigate, then you feel very lost. Yeah. So h- hidden kinds of programming is is what they feel like Mm. yeah and then and then education right and again i think that's a challenge for people with kids with disabilities in in general right is some school boards you get an ea and some you don't Mm -hmm. and i know for a lot of families with down syndrome because their their child doesn't um, have significant challenging behavior they go lower on the list for things like an ea yeah of course yeah You've touched on this a couple of times around kind of private insurance. What what, what sort of things does private insurance cover? <laughs> well, I think that depends on your plan too, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it could be like 15 bucks a session or something. Right, right. <laughs> depending on what, what you get. So sometimes it, it might cover some portion of speech or OT or PT. Oh, okay, I see. But it's it's... Who knows, right? Like it varies, yeah. Depending yeah. on your job or, or where you're getting this from, at least my experience, it's like some measly amount per session, right? And same with psychological supports, right? Like if you have a mental health diagnosis mm-hmm. and they cover like what, $20 of your $200 therapy session? Yeah, it's ridiculous sometimes yeah. for sure. Or they give you a lump sum, but it's so small and, and, and the, the therapy session is so expensive that you end up getting two a year or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you get two or three and you better be better by the end of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it, 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 it's not like sort of the states where they have, you know, I can't even be 
begin, I, I can't even begin to fathom it. Um, um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I often just zone out when I, when, when webinars talk about licensing and licensure and insurance and coding and all that sort of thing, because it's, it's, uh, confusing, but it does seem like the, the, at least in terms of autism services that insurance covers a whole lot more. Yeah. And that's, that's that because of the advocacy, right? So, um, the families really advocated and they got that written into the insurance laws that those things had to be covered. Um, so. And, and similarly, that's kind of where things like, I, I suppose, you know, I, I mean, I can only speak for BC, but I presume that's where things like the OAP kind of came from was probably advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are families. Families yeah. did all the, that work and got those things for, for themselves and their future, their future families. And so why, what, is that happening in Down syndrome? I, I mean, and I, as a kind of a related question, because I know that the sort of the prevalence of autism just keeps going up and up and up every year. And I, I don't know, we're in the sort of one in 40 or 50 now. What's the prevalence of Down syndrome? And then also connected to that, is advocacy for, for, for services kind of happening? Prevalence of Down syndrome. Trying to think if I know the exact number. Mm. I feel like, and we maybe have to fact check this, it's somewhere around one in a thousand, somewhere around there. So if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, world. Um, <laughs> but a, <laughs> but a, lot, a lot lower than autism. <laughs> yes, definitely. In terms of advocacy, there are fantastic advocacy groups that like Canadian Down Syndrome Society is amazing. Hmm. I've gone to their conference uh, and done some, they shared some of our research uh, on the, the caregiver stuff. Hmm. And then, you know, I, I have a few uh, families that have reached out to me in terms of thinking about, you know, behavior analysis and getting mm. behavior analysis for uh, people with Down syndrome. And we work a lot with like the London Down Syndrome Association. So I think there's a lot of strong advocacy groups mm. and they, you know, they, they're working towards things, but it, it's different. I, I don't know if they're as loud as the families with autism were mm -hmm. and, and they might have different priorities. I think they're really strong advocates for a lot of inclusion and thinking about inclusion in schools and inclusion mm -hmm. in the workforce mm -hmm. and those kinds of things, mm -hmm. which I think are really good priorities. So, and I always say, you know, I'm happy to support them, whatever they, I can do, whether it's research um, that supports that, I'll do mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And I think and kids with autism seem to just, and we've got, we already touched on this, but they seem to do you know, they seem to do a lot better in inclusive settings than say, or sorry, kids with Down syndrome do a lot better with, with in inclusive settings than say some kids with autism that have a lot of severe kind of challenging behavior, I suppose. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I would argue most kids are going to do better in inclusive classrooms. Mm. But yeah, if there's, there's <laughs> with the right support, right? So severe challenging behavior, we need to address that. And there's yeah. really good procedures for doing that very quickly. I mean, look at Hanley's group is getting severe challenging behavior decreased in what, 30 hours, and yeah. then throw, they're able to be in the classroom and it's, yeah. it's all set to go. So I think with the right support, we can get all of those kids uh, included.
Yeah, and, and, may, and maybe I kind of worded my question wrong. It's not so much that kids with autism wouldn't do well in inclusive environments. It's that they're less welcomed. Yeah, I yeah, I think especially when you get that challenging behavior, right? Like the the peers and the families are resistant, uh, mm-hmm. and and the families too, right? You know, it scares me to to if I was a parent with a, of a child with severe challenging behavior, it would be very scary for me to throw them in a classroom without mm-hmm. knowing that they had support because. The last thing I want is for my kid to hurt themselves or, or hurt someone else, sure. right? Yeah. So I think that support piece is, is essential and we have it. It's making sure it's accessible. Is is challenging behavior, I mean, obviously challenging behavior is something we see in every kid, whether they're, you know, diverse or not, but is 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 there, you know, enough kids with Down syndrome that have challenging behavior that that we see some research in that area too? Sure. Yeah. So the research on Down syndrome is is a little difficult sometimes because one, a lot of the prevalence kinds of studies for things like behavior problem or sleep problems or, or whatever, they always use Down syndrome as the control group to kids with ASD. Huh. So they go kids with autism, have more more challenging behavior than kids with Down syndrome. Mm. <laughs> so relative to kids with Down syndrome, this is what kids with autism are like. Uh, and so then it's like, well, what about these guys? Yeah, yeah. Um, do they have more or less or is it more prevalent? So there are some that do comparisons between those, you know, of other intellectual disabilities and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There is less but it's not zero and it may be less severe. I'm sure many people who have worked with kids um, or adults with Down syndrome have experienced the stereotype of, of stubbornness, right? That they're very stubborn, very set in their ways. That's kind of the commentary you get a lot from, mm-hmm. from the public. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, there's some issues there, right? In terms of task completion, pieces like that. Uh, We don't see, I I mean, I've had a a couple that I've seen things like aggression, stereotypy, but Mm. much less frequent um, than other things. What we usually get is is a lot of, all kids have transition issues, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see a lot of sleep things going on. So, you know, milder, Milder in topography, but not necessarily less perhaps. Right, right. The third secret word is teaching. And then, and then I think we also we also sometimes will see cases of of folks with Down syndrome that also have autism. Yes. And then, and and I wonder what uh, sort of you know, the outcomes look like for them, because obviously they, they get that autism funding and they get mm-hmm. that autism programming. And I wonder, does it also address, do, do we, do, I wonder if they see how, how that kind of addresses some of the other, the other pieces of Down syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would imagine I, I don't, there's not a good set of literature on that. And I don't even have a good sample, like personally to draw on. I know of a few, and uh, 
the diagnosis sometimes is really complicated too, Mm -hmm. where you're not even really sure if they should have the dual, like, you know, there's definitely some that have the, the dual diagnosis, but it is, it is challenging to, to differentiate between intellectual disability associated with Down syndrome and those characteristics associated with autism. Um, so that's a challenging diagnosis to give. So I don't I have a lot of yeah. exemplars of that. No, for sure. The other thing I was going to say related to like research and Down syndrome that's challenging is that um, oftentimes in behavioral literature, they get lumped into intellectual or developmental disability in general. Yeah. So like when we did reviews, They were one in a group of three kids, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't focused on Down syndrome. It was just focused on a particular Uh, behavioral technique. So if you're looking for research that includes people with Down syndrome, it's hard to find because you can't just search Down syndrome because Mm. it's embedded in the participant section. So it's Mm. people with intellectual disability or developmental Mm -hmm. disabilities. Mm -hmm. So there's lots on challenging behavior, but they're one of three participants. That's interesting. And so is, is, um, cause one thing we're also seeing now is, um, a lot of the kind of autistic self-advocates are, are speaking up more now, which is great. Uh, however, some of them are also speaking up kind of against behavior analytic kind of interventions and whatnot, but most of those, probably all of those folks that are speaking up don't have any intellectual disability. And so and often they're kind of in in some ways maybe not legitimately but they're speaking for the folks with intellectual disabilities which brings a whole other level of uh of challenges that that maybe those folks aren't considering that you know that 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 makes you know behavior analysis you know a really good intervention for those folks i don't know really where i was going with that but uh <laughs> just just kind of but just kind of pointing out that like you said like it's uh we often lump together intellectual disabilities and often, often, often intellectual disabilities assumed in autism is intellectual. I guess the question, yeah, I guess the question is, is do all folks with down syndrome have an intellectual disability? Most, at least three quarters, probably more, much, much higher than I would say autism. So it's a lot of them. And uh, going back to your, your point there, that there's there is a lot of research on you know interventions for intellectual disabilities, and that and, and like you said, if you looked in the participant section, you might find a few folks with Down syndrome. Yeah, that's that's what we found is um, when we did that review, you know, there were a lot of participants with Down syndrome present in the literature, but it was not a, an article on people with. It was not specific intervention tailored to their needs. Yeah. It was. I'm doing task analysis and I'm establishing it with people with developmental disabilities. And there's one person with Down syndrome present in the, mm. in the participant section. And so did you notice sort of whether in that research, whether those participants with Down syndrome and obviously you would have had to do a lot of reading and, and, you know, and uh, r- ruler on the page line by line, whether those folks with Down syndrome were, getting good outcomes from sort of the generalized intellectual disability intervention? Yeah, that's exactly what we did. I pulled all the behavioral (laughs) literature and I went line by line and pulled out every person with Down syndrome. Um, And then we did a meta-analysis. Awesome. Um, And yeah, there's no, there's no difference. Like we're getting good effects where, where there's a lot of literature where they're included for one 
one like challenge decreasing behavior so challenging mm-hmm. behavior mm-hmm. there's a lot of work on communication present uh in the literature mm. and so i can say pretty confidently that you know these strategies are likely to to work for individuals with down syndrome and, mm-hmm. and my experiences that they do but i think the part that's missing is that piece about about tailoring and considering those unique characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. So when you lump everybody together, you are limited in the areas that you can target because they have to be present across all your all your participants. So, you know, challenging behavior is universal across mm-hmm. developmental disabilities. It's it's happening across all of them. And expressive language is usually a thing that's mm-hmm. an issue across multiple developmental disabilities. But then we're not using those things that we know about, you know, the relative social strengths and the relative strengths of the population Mm. to design an intervention that's tailored to them. So that's what's kind of missing is if I know more about this particular diagnosis, I can do a really good intervention that is targeted, that targets the critical pivotal skills or those Mm. behavioral cusps for this particular group of individuals. Mm. And that's that's what's missing from from the Down syndrome literature. And I know we kind of, I think, already touched on some of that already, but I think it'd be good for listeners just to kind of hear again, you know, what are those things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the big things that I think about, so when we're talking early intervention, you know, we all know that for kids with ASD, joint attention is like one of those things, right? Mm. That it's kind of that that skill Um, establishing that skill is going to open up new opportunities to them because they're going to engage with other individuals. It's a core Mm -hmm. feature. Well, kids with Down syndrome are really good at joint attention. Mm. They actually use joint attention to escape task-related demands. (laughs) Uh, In the literature, they call it party tricks. So you have a kid who has Down syndrome, you present a hard task to them, And they go, look at that, and they point, and they smile, and they laugh, and you go, oh, that's really cool, and you stop doing work with them, because who can ignore a cute little baby pointing at stuff and smiling and laughing, right? They are the redirectors. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So we have kind of this opposite issue um, (laughs) in that the task-related things are really challenging for young kids with Down syndrome and requesting is a really important skill to establish early on. Mm. Exploratory motor kinds of things. So engaging with materials, using, manipulating. uh, And again, that might also be influenced by some of the muscle pieces, right? Where it's hard Mm. to manipulate objects. So Mm. working on exploring that. And then those task-related consequences. So just like I might pair you know, tangibles or tasks to try and increase the value of social reinforcement for for social consequences for kids with autism, I might pair social consequences with task-related consequences to try and increase the value of those things. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a that's a big piece is like definitely requesting. And that's, you know, manding, manding. Yeah, yeah, is always yeah. important for everyone. <laughs> Getting the stuff you need. So, so what are you working on now? Like, what's 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 the latest projects? I know you mentioned uh, briefly when we were talking maybe a month or so ago that you were look, 
working on a, uh, you're involved in a, in a manual of some sort for early intervention? Mm, yeah, that came out. There's a called Off to a Good Start. There's a, a mm. behavioral manual for zero to three intervention for uh, kids with, with Down syndrome mm. um, that covers all those specific phenotypic strengths and weaknesses so that you can pull out program. It's very much a, I don't want to make it seem like it's super amazing, but it's the, the Gina Green style of like, it's got a list of programs that you can kind of pull out and mm. uh, use to develop interventions focused interventions for little guys with down syndrome. The the cool part right is it's 0 to 3. Like yeah. <laughs> that's that's before any kid with autism is diagnosed, right? So 100%. That's, that's what early intervention is for for genetic disabilities that are obvious. But yeah, because you can start the moment, you know, the mo- you know right away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I had a friend who did like babbling work with um kids with down syndrome too, right? So it's there's some cool things that you can do when you get them really young. And are these sort of intended to be kind of parent implemented? Um yeah, yeah, so the book is designed probably for like parents uh, mostly. Mm-hmm. If you have behavioral knowledge, you could probably skip the first book and just take the second one, which is the list of programs. So mm. the first book is more sort of the the theory kind of stuff and introduces families to prompting and shaping and reinforcement and all of that kind of stuff. And then the second part is is the programming. So mm-hmm. if you have that knowledge already, probably the first part is less beneficial, except maybe the descriptions of of Down syndrome and learning about the diagnosis. But but the second has like just all the programming written out. Uh, so that's already done. So that 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 wasn't the answer to the question then. <laughs> what, what are you working on now? <laughs> um, so uh, some of the stuff we're doing, uh, I have a few students that are working on some online uh, parent training kinds of pieces and looking at these kinds of uh, one is some sibling work. Mm-hmm. So doing some like stay play talk kinds of things with individuals with Down syndrome mediated through an online platform, as well as through some synchronous coaching. So some asynchronous, some synchronous kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I have a a grant right now that's looking at uh, inclusive um, education and inclusive practices in informal uh, settings. So informal being outside of school settings. So museums, Mm. camps, uh, those kinds of things. So we have a, a host of projects related to that. So looking at, you know, what are policies and procedures and things in place that would target people with intellectual and developmental disabilities yep. and present uh, facilitators or barriers for them, working on some training kinds of things. Awesome. But working in that third third space. Yeah, I see some, I mean, there's obvious value just for, you know, the families and uh, and the you know, and the people with disabilities, but I imagine this, that's also going to be a really sort of cool way of kind of educating the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, right. Like, I don't know, when you think about your childhood, the stuff that you carry around, right. It's like, it's going to camp. Uh, It's going to the museum. Like those are the ones I feel like are those those things that you hold on to. So uh, mm-hmm. thinking about inclusion in those spaces, like we're not really included until we get into all of those spaces, those yeah. community spaces yeah. as well. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, before we kind of finish off, I was just wondering if there's sort of, just for folks out there listening that may, you know, uh, you know, get their first uh, client with Down syndrome, probably not in an early intervention setting, maybe in a school setting or, um, uh, you know, out, out here in, in British Columbia, we have a lot of folks that work with these kind of, call them kind of globally funded contracts where basically you're getting a family that doesn't even know what a behavior consultant is. Um, and, and for, and for whatever reason you've, you've arrived at their home, uh, and, and, uh, and, and maybe your background is mostly autism. What are some things you might just kind of want to say to these folks? Yeah. Um, for me, I probably wouldn't say anything. I'd probably want to listen to them first. Um, so I think really getting to know, uh, the family and the strengths and about the child, the the techniques, like the behavioral techniques are, are going to be the same or similar, but don't pull from your standard like, oh, we need to work on X, Y, and Z because that's what I always go in with. So mm. I think really listening um, and seeing, you know, what are their strengths? What are their needs? Uh, and learning about their diagnosis and then learning about how that diagnosis interacts with their whole context. So how does that affect their parents and how does that affect the individual, uh, those, those kinds of things? And then using using those strengths in the context of your intervention or your behavior plan, right? So a lot of listening is going to be helpful to figure out what to do there. And, and and what would be a good place? I mean, obviously, we've got your research, and I'm going to share all that in the show notes. But uh, beyond that, what would be a sort of a, some, some good places for folks to kind of start just learning more about Down syndrome? Yeah, I think um, if, if people want to learn, there's some really good uh, developmental literature out there. Mm. So one of the big authors is, is going to be Deborah Fiddler. So if you want to learn about the, that behavioral phenotype, the strengths, the challenges, the, the functioning, mm. um, all of that is is really nice literature that they've looked at the development and, and she's done a ton of work in there. There's also some stuff by uh, Dykins on uh, Dykins and, and Finnecane on incorporating the behavioral phenotype into uh, behavior analytic kinds of approaches. So blending that those ideas together. Those are some good ones to look at. There's a textbook related to that that that's um, I think is a really good overview of different genetic syndromes and then thinking about some possible uh, intervention avenues. Mm. Is that that Canadian one? Is that the one you're talking about? The... No, this one is older, mm. um, but in a similar vein. Perfect. Well, that's awesome. Well, Nicole, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I mean, I think we learned just a ton of really, really interesting things and cool things about working with folks with Down syndrome that, you know, that I don't think we ever would have thought about. And I think often folks are just kind of going in and, and, and uh, you know, applying things from an autism lens uh, because that's sort of where a lot of their training was. And so this stuff has been, I think, really, really helpful and, and can really help kind of kind of guide folks in, 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 in the right direction. So thanks so much for, for, for being on today with me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Super cool. All right. 